to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. And today on the show, we have Heather Smith. Heather is a chartered accountant who has run her own practice. She's also written a number of books, including Zero for Dummies, has a YouTube channel, and also runs a community for cloud accountants and others in the cloud industry. So Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you, Meryl, so much for having me on your show. Really excited to be here and hello to everyone listening in. Well, Heather, let's start with a little bit of your backstory. So how you got into accounting and then how you made that transition from working in practice into doing some of these things like writing books? I have very clear memories of my accounting teacher walking into my classroom and just becoming besotted with accounting, with her, with the balance and serenity of accounting and uh, sort of from 14 years old pursued it from that point. I started my career after finishing a degree in England and spent three years working in accounts in England doing management accounting for Kraft General Foods. Um, So lots of analysis, which everyone's now talking about, lots of analysis, lots of management reporting, and spent 10 years working overseas in Singapore, uh, Canada, and um, England, as I mentioned. I then came back to Australia and spent time in the educational field, various universities teaching accounting, which I adored. And I then thought, oh, I should start my own business. So I started my own business very much ran it out of uh, necessity of raising two young children, school-aged children. And I realized that while they were going into childcare or going into school, I only had about five hours available to actually do work. So I worked out, well, I actually was given instructions on how I could connect my computer to someone else's computer. This was back before people weren't even talking about cloud computing. And I did it all through remote support. And I worked out that that kind of pushed me from being able to work three hours a day to five hours a day within school hours. So I no longer needed to travel. I could connect with my clients for five hours a day. And I also, doing that, identified or worked out that I needed to do the high level work to increase my hourly rate. So I spent a lot of time becoming the expert in particular areas deep diving into inventory, deep diving into software. So I really knew it. And I kind of worked on my business model was I was kind of Mary Poppins in that I would jump in, fix someone's work and then jump out of it. And I had this long going relationship with lots and lots of clients. And because I was fixing up their management reports or the chart of accounts or helping them understand their numbers, it didn't matter where they were. And I was able to connect with them no matter where they were. So I sort of very early on started working globally and was connecting with clients wherever they were. And it sort of was very natural then to move into cloud accounting and adopt the efficiencies of cloud accounting, which has evolved into running a practice and uh, doing what I do now. And then how did you make that transition from running that global business to then writing your first book? And what was your first book? What I would do was I would work 
during the day. And then in the evening, I would write about what I'd learned. And so I love writing. So I would write stories about what I'd learned. And this was back probably in the days when really we only had WordPress or blogging or online blogs. And I would send my little articles into these blogs and uh, they started getting published. And I got a lot of traction on the Australian website Flying Solo. I became a really regular contributor for them. And as a writer, I really liked the opportunity to tell a story and how you would start with the business and how you'd end with the business and the discovery. And every single time you spend time with a client, there is a story. There's something interesting that has happened that day. And that's what I would share. And what happened was I was writing these posts everywhere. And uh, Wiley Business actually came to me and asked me to write a book for them. The funny thing was actually the email actually was in my spam folder. And so I was cleaning out my spam folder and found it there and sort of screamed very loudly because I was very excited. And I ended up writing uh, Learn MYAB in Seven Days, which was the book just around the time that MYAB went to the very new platform that they currently are on, where they kind of go up into the cloud and then down back into the desktop. So almost possibly the first cloud accounting book out there talking about that hybrid model of uh, cloud that uh, MYAB had. And while I was writing that, I came up with another book which was how to start a small business. And Wiley agreed that I could write that. So before the first one was out, I was writing the second one. And then once that one came out, Rod Drury approached me and said, hey, how about you write a book on zero? And I took that to my editors and we went through quite an extensive process. But then it was agreed that uh, I would write for the For Dummies series. And what may be interesting for people, because many people will know the For Dummies series, it's the yellow and black books, normally have their own stand in a bookstore. But you actually, as a writer, you go through about an eight-week training process in that. And so I kept having to write. I had to write an entire chapter and it was reviewed by about 30 people across the world, including a reverend. It went to different countries, the wording, my phrasing, the actual terminology I used, was it country specific? And it was really quite a very interesting process in developing technical writing skills. It was quite harrowing to have so many people review something that you have written, but I learnt a huge amount from that. And whenever I do write and whenever I do send something into the editor, I always say, look, what is your feedback? Let me grow from that. Let me learn from that. And I actually have a list of, uh, when it comes to writing, how I describe it is I can build the house, but I can't paint the house. And that's what the editor is for? Yeah, absolutely. If you are considering writing, then I would sort of lean towards that philosophy in that you probably have a deep amount of content in you. You have technical content. You have the deep understanding of the accounting rules plus an understanding of your clients. But you may not grammatically, I have no idea where commerce is supposed to go, but I have people who do know that and I work with them and they help me be able to produce writing that can then help other people. So that's kind of the process that I work with. And so doing that process with For Dummies really helped me up the ante and up the game when it comes to writing. And so I have improved along the way. But editors have always commented to me that I'm one of the most open persons in terms of working with in that they can give me any feedback and I will go away and I'll work with that. So one of the things I have is 
always review your writing for the word that because it frequently doesn't need the word that in it. And frequently it doesn't need the word will in it, W-I-L-L. So you have all these strange little things that I kind of work with to try and improve my writing. But I guess like you and I, we understand numbers. I don't necessarily understand all the grammatical things out there, but there are people who do and who can help you with that. I'm really interested with the eight-week program that you went through in creating the Four Dummies book. And what would be some of the key lessons or strategies that they were trying to train into people that were writing for them? Because I think whatever they've created in that training, it would actually apply to a lot of technical writers that are writing how-to guides. Absolutely. So that was training before I was even guaranteed the opportunity to write the book. So this is completely eight weeks, almost full-time training, unpaid, but very fortunate to be able to tap into it. So one of the things is to write modular. So when you write something, write it completely independent of what's around it so that you can take it out and put it somewhere else. So if we take that a bit further, in terms of social media, Instagram is a really great place to think about writing modular because you can only put a certain amount in there. So think about something that you want to explain, such as cash flow, and think about one element and just put that one complete story from beginning to end in a small place like Instagram. So that's talking about being modular. The other thing is they want you to include every chapter starts with a personal story. So find that personal story that you can talk about to explain why you're doing something. So I think when I talk about the inventory, I have a whole chapter on inventory, but I start off by describing my first experience counting inventory stock, which was frozen sausage rolls in a massive freezer wearing a big sort of coat and an anorak and describing it adding that color and that detail into the actual story so it's not just the very exciting and important topic of inventory but you've got this sort of I'm standing on a cherry picker in a freezer with a big anorak coat on counting sausage rolls which sounds really funny and you can actually picture it in your mind so that was one of the aspects The other thing was breaking things down into activities or notes. So if you actually need to specifically note something, pull that out and highlight it. It's okay to bold things. It's okay to italics things, but keep it constant. And when it comes to tips, keep those constant. So we had a big thing about some references would be country specific. So they always have a world symbol tagged with them. So I try and very much speak to a global audience. When I say something, when I write something, when I communicate something, I think, okay, globally, how are we dealing with this? But if I then have to say, well, look, you know, but for those people who are dealing with making tax digital in the UK, the reference that you need to worry about is here, or you need to go and seek specific information to align with that. So there's a few sort of things that pull out in terms of that technical writing, but also referencing back having very clear steps. And one of the big things for me was I always start from the exact same position, which I find some technical writers don't, but I always start from home dashboard and go forward from there. So the instructions are pull out to your home dashboard and then we're going to click on the button, the green button labeled stop or save. So I always give the color the name on the button, how it's labelled and what's going to happen there. Hopefully you found that useful. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. 
I do some how-to writing when it comes to zero and record videos. And it's actually, it was really interesting hearing the training process that they went through, but also the last part of what you were talking about, always starting from the same place and then being so specific with things like the button and trying to talk to a global audience. Yeah. I am very, very specific about all those little detail things because the home thing is really important because people get lost and you assume that they don't, but they do. And if they always, they could normally press escape to get back to home. But if you start midway through, they might not know where to start. And I know I read instructions and I'm like, where are you starting with this? It doesn't look too hard, but I don't know where you are. So I wanted to move next on to, so we talked about coming from accounting into your practice and then getting into writing. And then I have some questions around your YouTube channel as well. So what did that transition look like? I think we were on to your third book at this stage. And when did the YouTube channel come in? And can you describe that in a little more detail? I was uh, listening to Tim Reed's Small Business, Big Marketing. And one of the things he suggested was just throw out a webinar, ask people to come along and attend the webinar and answer any questions they may have. So this is now colloquially called an AMA or an Ask Me Anything. So I set up a webinar using GoToMeeting. I put out an invite for people and uh, one person came along to the webinar and I recorded the webinar and I answered all of the questions and then I went through various how to do things how to sort of set up a file, I think it was. And I recorded it and I saved it. And I was like, oh, one person, that wasn't very much. And so I topped and tailed it and I created a YouTube channel and I uploaded it. And I didn't think very much about it. And I went back about four months later and it had something like 40,000 views. And I was like, oh, that's a bit odd what's going on? I had no idea what was going on. So I did that process a few times more. So I just have these random webinar, ask me anything videos, and they just seem to attract a lot of people on YouTube. And then the next thing I know is I've got an email from YouTube saying, I have now reached a certain number of views and they're going to turn me into a commercial channel. And I am thinking, actually, this is spam and completely, again, didn't believe it carefully followed the instructions and turned into a sort of this commercial YouTube channel, which means I can play adverts on my channel and I actually earn income from the number of views that happen on my channel. So I have the channel there and it was more of an accidental test initially. And now I kind of understand it and I kind of make an effort to upload videos. I spent a long time learning Camtasia and how to use that. So how can I create videos? And then what that did lead into is that other organizations asked me to create videos for them, which was kind of a nice additional revenue stream and that organizations were asking me to make how-to videos for them. And so I got the equipment I needed and tested and trained and learned how to do that. So now I can do it quite quickly. And YouTube here in Queensland, I'm based in Queensland, I then would now be invited to YouTube organized meetups and events because they want to encourage more people to be using YouTube and more how-to channels. So they do send out information about it and it's trying to understand what's relevant for the audience who are listening or watching my channel versus, again, I'm sort of aligning with 
gamers or cat memes or panda videos and trying to put out what's interesting there. So what I do goes against the norms of probably everything else sitting on YouTube, but they're long hour-long videos. And I can see that, like I have a six-hour series on how to set up MYAB, and I can see, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have gone through and watched the full six hours, and that's great. And you do get statistical analysis at the background of the videos are viewed in 130 countries, and again, that's great. So what tips have I learned from that? Very much be clear about what contact details you want to share with people because it will be up there for a very long time. And if you put something up there, think about it being evergreen, which means it's always going to be relevant. So if we're talking about concepts in inventory, periodic perpetual, that's always going to be relevant. But if you're talking about something in the cloud universe, and we know a lot of these cloud solutions, they evolve very quickly. I'm starting to get some sort of negative feedback because I've got videos up there but the solution has evolved and the dashboard looks different, but it's kind of, that's something I can't do anything about. And people are upset that it's not a modern video, but I don't have a way of replacing the video into that spot. So your old spots will appear high in terms of SEO, but I don't have a way of replacing them. I don't necessarily want to delete it or I'll lose that slot, but it's being aware of keeping it evergreen or keeping it current. And making sure you're aware of what contact information you put out there, because in some of the earlier ones, my email address is quite visible and it's like, yikes, perhaps shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Yes. So how much time would you spend creating YouTube videos each week or month? A one hour video could take you up to four hours to do, but that's putting up a very polished, properly edited video. So it depends on the quality that you want to put up there. You can record live and put it straight up there, but I think mine are polished, high quality and going up there. So probably four times the length of the video. So possibly that's shocking, but people could spend a lot more time on it and a lot less time of it. And if you're interested in looking other people who are doing it, well, there's a gentleman by the name of I think it's Andrew Garcia in the United States and he uploads a video and he gets like 20,000 views for every video he uploads. And it's again on accounting topics. Great. My question around the time that you spend on YouTube ties into a bigger question because it looks like you've got lots of different things going on in a typical week. There's you're attending events, you're running a community, there's YouTube, there's social media. So what does a typical work week look like and how do you decide where to spend the time? I don't and haven't fallen in the nine to five regime for probably the last decade. I work when I want to work. I stop working when I don't want to work, which means that I may well work on a weekend, which is perfectly fine because it means that I potentially am at the movies on a Tuesday when there's no one else there and it's cheaper Tuesday. So I've not adhered to a nine to five work week philosophy for many years. And it actually is very good for taking advantage of quiet times that you don't get if you are working nine to five. Typically, Monday to Thursday are my busy periods where I do focus on getting a lot of work done and will spend longer hours doing work because my husband actually works in another city during that time. So I'm sort of here on my own doing that. And probably everyone's going to go, this is really bad, but I'm probably driven by the projects that 
come into my inbox and dealing with those. So I should be potentially more process orientated, but I'm probably more creative and see a bright, shiny light and run after it, which is everything that we're told not to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel really bad. Pretty hard to do that. Yeah, I probably do everything you're told not to do, but it kind of seems to work for me and I don't understand why and I know that I should potentially follow more processes. I really, um, as you know, I really heavily leverage technology to do a lot of things that I do do and I can just seem to be across a lot of things. So I'm not sure if that's answered your question exactly. I do have a calendar. People will book into the calendar and I will jump in and deal with them, but every day we'll look quite random and I can be dealing with different countries, different people, different places, different things, different interests. I can, you know, spend a couple of hours doing content creation strategies with one person while jumping into an accounting file in the next hour. Yeah, indeed. And then you do quite a bit of travel as well. So how do you manage that with being productive but also operating in different time zones and working effectively? So as I kind of mentioned at the start, I spent a decade working abroad, then came back and was very settled for 20 years raising children. And so I'm now very focused on being a digital nomad. I have my entire practice now fits in a very lovely Italian handbag and I can travel anywhere. I've got all of my equipment streamlined. Anything I need to access is online and I can be anywhere. I can be anywhere and start working on clients' information or whatever a client needs from me, wherever I need to be. But be that coffee, a coffee office, yeah. be that a hotel room. I don't work on the beach. I know that it would be lovely too, but I'm not a, I don't know how you get sand and beach equipment. I don't know if anyone does. They get the lifestyle shop with the laptop and then go back to work in the shade. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But what I do do is what I call a workation in that I take long time away. But during that time, so for instance, I'll take a lot of January off. So I will be away for three or four weeks from my home office, but I will work maybe an hour every morning or four hours during the week. So I am keeping on top of everything. But by doing that, and because I can access everything online, it means my holiday abroad can be a lot longer. And in terms of traveling, I am very disciplined when it comes to sleep. So I have a sleep mask, my sleep cream, my sleep um, earplugs, and I'm asleep before the plane takes off if I want to sleep on a plane. I'm very focused. I'm very regimented. When I go to a conference, we have there's various conferences that I go to through the year. I'm very conscious of the return on investment in my time. And I um, talk about a conference bingo card. I have certain people that I will line up that I must speak to them at this point in time or during the conference. And that effectively means I don't have to potentially have multiple meetings for the next two months with all those people. I will take time and have uh, really decent conversations with them during that time that that need to be covered. So I'm very strict about my traveling time, but that does mean I'm very focused on having experiences and I will take the opportunity to enjoy my time away, enjoy the experience, but involve work in that as well. So I just spent a month abroad in England, Spain and Tokyo, but uh, during that time I caught up with some 
amazing accountants and bookkeepers and cloud integrators in the UK. And subsequent to that, we've actually <laughs> we've actually done a, a, a quite significant amount of work, business work, because it just really warmed up the relationship and my understanding of where they are in the business, where I am, and we now sort of are cross-communicating on a regular basis. We did know one another before catching up, but one couple spent the entire day taking me around Brighton and showing me everything in Brighton. And, you know, that really helps you understand doing business with that person. Yeah, that FaceTime can really help. And when you were talking about the workation, that reminded me of a podcast episode that we've recorded. We'll link to it in the show notes where Michael from the Bean Ninjas team talked about his workation where he spent, I think it was four or six weeks in Bali and spent some time working over there. And, and as you said, keeping on top of everything, but then because he was still working, was able to spend the, the four to six weeks away. Yeah, absolutely. And you can spend time away like in Bali, like accommodation's cheap there, food's cheap there, internet's really fast there. And sort of it's just changing this philosophy. We don't need to work nine to five. We don't need to physically see our clients. It's actually, you know, <laughs> it's very rare that I physically see a client. I have a policy if they've got a cute dog or good coffee, I'll make the effort to go and see them. But other than that, I have a local client who I was working with and uh, he had an appointment with me and I went and uh, knocked on his door and he opened it in a towel. And I was like, we've got an appointment. He goes, I thought we were doing it online. I was like, well, were you planning on wearing clothes in the appointment? Like what's going on? So uh, yeah. So uh, client's even then, when they're down the road, they don't want to see me. They're happy to do it all online. So, uh. <laughs> That's a nice segue into the next section of this episode, which is looking at practice tools. So we've talked about your journey in being an accountant and the way that you are able to work from anywhere now, anywhere in the world. And now I wanted to look at things from a practice perspective and Thinking of the modern firm and the fact that a lot of accounting and bookkeeping firms are running in the cloud and running their practices with a variety of cloud tools. And I had some questions for you around practice tools in some different themes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the first subset that I wanted to talk about was around security tools and seeing whether you had any recommendations of some different tools that might help keep passwords secure or might keep practice information secure. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, and, and protecting your client information is extremely important. One of the things that I found when I was traveling is every time I logged on, it freaked out because I had actually changed locations. So one of the things you might uh, contemplate if you are planning on traveling like I did or I do is uh, look at a VPN and talk to your IT guy about potentially installing a VPN, which kind of hides where your location is. So that doesn't cause a problem. That's something that potentially your IT guy or specialist would assist with. But the other security tools that I very heavily rely on is I use a password management tool called LastPass. And all of my passwords are stored in LastPass. And it means that I primarily log on to that, but then that can automate the logins to all of my other uh, solutions. And they're using very highly encrypted passwords, which has got capital letters, small letters, numbers, symbols, etc. So everything is very secure. And with a solution, a password management solution like that, you can also have it set up so 
I can actually share a password to a solution with someone, but they can't see the passwords. They can just access the solution, but they can't see the passwords. So there's a variety of password management solutions like LastPass or 1Password. And what the next thing to to also, or the other thing to consider there is having two-factor authentication set up so that when you do log into something, you're actually having to enter in a six-digit code that you have on your mobile device or your computer or texted to you so that you're getting that double level of protection there. And you also may consider, depending on an accounting practice situation, if you have, or a client situation, if you have the requirement for having multiple approval levels within processes that are happening, such as approval of purchases or approval of payroll, you could look at a solution like Zahara, which is based out of South Africa that you might not have heard of, but that allows for various approval levels on processing through the accounts department in terms of payment and multiple people in there with multiple levels of approval. And another solution that you could look at, especially if you're considering working with teams in various places, is something like Practice Protect, which is a bigger solution that sits across everything. But what it means is if Jane suddenly stops working for the business, you can switch off something within Practice Protect and she now no longer has access to anything in the business, which is really important. I know that uh, when someone has access to staff and then they stop working for you, you want to make sure they can't download or access or get any information that you don't want them to have. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for that. And as you said, it's really, especially as we're working in the cloud with distributed teams, security has always been important for accountants, but I think even more so with all of the data that we have in the cloud. Yeah, it's brilliant, but mistakes can happen quickly and uh, you need to protect yourself. The next question that I had for you is around time tracking. And there were two different tools that I wanted to ask about. And maybe you could describe that in a use case of how a practice might implement these tools as well as the different features. So there was Minidoc and Harvest. Absolutely. So there's a lot of talk about value billing and retainer billing, but however you are billing your clients, it's also really important to track the time that you're actually undertaking on all the projects so that you know if what you are actually finally billing them is you're actually making a profit from what you're actually billing them. So if I talk about initially MinuteDoc, MinuteDoc was uh, one of the very first apps that was developed within the Xero ecosystem and it was developed out of Hawke's Bay in New Zealand along with Xero. So I kind of think that's sort of a nice little story there. And it's very quick and easy to pick up. It uses social media interfaces. And what you can monitor is um, all of the time you track against clients but you can also track it against activities and against projects and against budgets. So you can set up all of these different parameters in that you want to spend so much time with a particular person or on a particular project, or you've got a budget that you're aligning to. And then from that, you can generate all of the times that you've tracked and push that across You can create an invoice, an invoice directly from the solution, or you can integrate that and push it across into either Xero or any of your other accounting solutions it does push across into. 
But the other thing you can do is you can actually generate reports. So if the purpose is not invoicing, you can still generate robust reports. One of the things this does is it helps you track all of that lost time. So when you're out and about and someone rings up and you just spend 10 minutes on the phone with them or five minutes on the phone with them, or you are in the office and you're working on a project, but then you have to stop working on the project because something important has come in. And if you find that you think you're not billing enough, then this is something, you know, if you get to the end of the work week and you had 38 hours and you weren't hitting 38 hours, this is something that can help you really um, track that time and where you're spending on that time. And uh, I know for me, when I implemented it the first month, my income, my revenue went up about 5%. So for a small business, increasing your revenue 5% for just doing one small thing is quite astonishing. And it is completely paid for itself doing that. Now, Harvest is a very popular solution. I think a lot of people in the States use this solution. And it does very similar to the time tracking that I described in MinuteDoc. My understanding is also you can potentially put expenses through. So it can have both time tracking and expense claims through on it as well. But I'm not as familiar with Harvest as I am with uh, MinuteDoc as I'm a regular user of MinuteDoc. You touched on an interesting point for the accounting industry around whether we should track time or not, especially if we are based pricing or charging fixed fees. And I know that there's different people in the industry that have different opinions on that. And I'm firmly in the camp of tracking time, even though we charge fixed fees, because I like to have that data to then make decisions or to assess how particular jobs are going and to see if we need to make scope changes. So Internally at Beanages, we find time tracking a really important and effective tool to help with profitability of the business. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And sometimes it's marketing people telling us to value bill or retain a bill. But as accountants, we need to understand the profit of projects. Yes, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. Next up, I've just got a couple of questions around to see whether you have any recommendations for automation tools for an accounting firm or a bookkeeping firm? There's a lot of automation tools out there. And I think if you are looking to automate, look to the industry to see what people are talking about and adopt them. Typically, I suggest, you know, identify one, adopt it, let it settle down and adopt something else. Some of the um, lighter, easier, quick win automation tools out there is something called Zapier, or you could use something called OneSAS or Microsoft Flow. And what these solutions do, in fact, I was just testing out one just this week, I've added another one in, is that if something happens in one place, it automatically causes something to happen in another place. So I have a Zapier set up on my website so that when someone comes along and puts in their details, it automatically takes those details and pushes them into uh, zero. So it pushes all of the contact details into zero, but it will also push those details across into my client newsletter list. And then it means that I'm just not double handling, double entering any information. So that's a really quick and easy way to do things. And when you are looking to automate, sometimes putting in these massive systems initially can be overwhelming. And one of the quick ways and quick wins can be looking at some of these other smaller solutions. 
And if you go to these websites, there are actual experts who can come in and do an assessment of what's actually happening in your business and suggest uh, time savers there. But I estimate I um, can save probably about 90 minutes to two hours a month. I know that's not a lot for about 20 US dollars in zaps, which for me, I'm quite happy with. And uh, whatever you've got a solution and the same data is going into another solution, look to see where opportunities to save time there can be. So if we're ever doing data entry, speak to an expert and see how you can reduce that data entry. Wonderful. Well, Heather, we're going to be recording two segments on the podcast and our next segment is going to be talking about some other zero add-ons that aren't necessarily practice-specific, but they can be used by business owners as well. But before we get into that, did you have any final tips that you wanted to share in terms of automation techniques or practice management tools or anything else related to assisting bookkeeping and accounting firm owners effectively run their practices? I think one of the things that I found really made a big difference for me to be able to work freely is one, look to move away from a server or anything server-based to moving to G Suite and being able to access my email online and not having to worry about it downloading into um, Outlook. I do like Outlook, but that whole downloading it into Outlook um, email um, really ties you to a PC. Don't feel that in terms of integrating your practice, don't feel that you need to do everything at once, but get an expert in or read what other people are using and scope it out and look to do an implementation over a couple of years. And as I mentioned before, identify something, implement it, train people in it, let it settle down, look to something else, and then implement something else. Maybe that's three months down the track until you're sort of really comfortable with it. So every time I implement something, you always have a few teething issues with it until it's settled down and then you've forgotten it's working and you've forgotten it's just all automation that's happening and you're just looking for the next thing. Heather, thank you so much for coming on the show and looking forward to chatting with you in the next episode. Thank you. By the way, if you want to support to get paid and make better decisions, we've put together a zero small business toolkit including cash flow forecast templates and guides to setting up zero. Grab it for free at beingninjas.com slash zero toolkit. And that's X-E-R-O-T-O-O-L-K-I-T. 